This season of On the Contrary by IDR is supported by Hindustan Unilever Foundation or HUF, a private foundation that supports and amplifies scalable solutions around India's diverse water challenges. You're listening to On the Contrary by IDR, a show featuring unlikely conversations on topics that affect our future. Hear differing perspectives from leaders and experts as they help us make sense of the most pressing issues of our time. Here's your host, Smaranita Shetty. Globally, more than 400 million women are engaged in farm work. This includes everything from sowing, winnowing, harvesting, to other forms of labor-intensive processes, such as rice transplantation. Even in India, a majority of farm work in the country is done by women. Approximately 80% of all economically active women are employed by the agricultural sector. Despite this, when we talk about agriculture in India, we don't necessarily talk about women farmers. We don't talk about the women who work on their family lands, who work as daily wage laborers, or who look after livestock. Our schemes and policies almost always leave out this invisible, yet extremely valuable workforce. But while we fail to acknowledge or value their work, can we really imagine a world in which women stop farming? Can we even exist in a world where women aren't involved in agricultural production? Answering this question and more today are our two guests, Irina Vithal and Kavita Kuruganti. Irina is one of India's most respected independent advisors on emerging markets, agriculture, and urban development. She currently sits on the board of some of India's largest companies, including HDFC and Diageo. Previously, she was a partner at McKinsey & Company, where she was a founding member of the Global Development and Emerging Markets Practice. Kavita is a social activist known for her work on sustainable farm livelihoods and farmers' rights. She is the founder-convener of the Alliance for Sustainable and Holistic Agriculture, which is a pan-Indian alliance of more than 400 farmer organizations. Kavita has also served on several Government of India's committees and task forces in an advisory role. Hi, Kavita. Hi, Irina. Welcome to On the Contrary podcast yet again. It's nice to have you both here. Kavita, if I can start with you. When we talk about farmers in our country, the dominant image tends to be that of a man with a hull in the middle of his fields. But nearly 40% of our agricultural workforce is women. So can you briefly explain to our listeners the role that women play in agriculture today? I just want to point out that even the number that is stated of 40% of all agricultural workers being women is questionable because there's probably no woman out there who's not a worker and no rural woman out there who's probably not associated, at least peripherally, with agriculture. So that's a questionable number. But within women who are counted as workers by our official data systems, at least 73%, as per the latest numbers, are engaged in agriculture. And they are engaged in agriculture either in what is called as a self-employed category or as casual labor or agricultural laborers. Different kinds of surveys in India have different uh, terminologies that they deploy, cultivate, self-employed, agricultural laborer, and so on. So we are talking about a very important category of workers engaged in agriculture, and that's women. And Indian agriculture is driven mostly because women putting in their labor 
and Indian rural women are mostly surviving off agriculture. It's almost like a, you know, mutually required or symbiotic sort of a relationship. Agriculture needs women farmers and women farmers need agriculture. But the problem really is that no one actually visibilizes these women as farmers in their own right, despite the fact that we have an official national policy for farmers in 2007, which for the first time delinked the definition of farmers, at least as far as policymakers are theoretically concerned, from land ownership. Otherwise, the definition of a farmer is either you have to have a land or the census definition requires a farmer to be risk-taking, somebody who takes risks to be entrepreneur in the field of agriculture. For the first time, the National Policy for Farmers recognizes that those who are putting in work and getting something out of productive resources can be termed as farmers. And many women out there, we're talking about crores and crores of women, will then get classified as farmers. Thanks, Kavita. If I can come to you, Irina, talking about agricultural policies in India, what is the government worldview? What is some of their thinking when they're drafting policies for the agricultural sector? Kavita touched upon it a little, but whom are they catering to and what are their considerations when they're framing these policies? I find it fascinating to think of four mindsets that the government has. The first one is price of agriculture versus inflation. You know, the price of the consumer is the margin of the farmer. But I think governments across the world, but our government focuses a lot more on inflation management than on ensuring the right price to the farmer. And at the drop of a hat, we will manage price down because CPI should not go up. CPI, which is the calculation of inflation, India is one of the unique countries where 50% of the weightage of inflation is food. So we ourselves have created a monster where we have 50% of weightage in food. The second mindset is food security versus the business of agriculture. We are so fixated on food security. We still haven't gotten over Bengal famine. We haven't gotten over the green revolution that we are not able to recognize that this is actually a business. By the way, it is the single largest private business in Indian economy. It's 14 to 16% of the GDP. Even if I take dairy, which is one component of it, and livestock, dairy, fisheries today is anywhere between 35, 38% of this. Even if I just took dairy, it is as large as the single largest manufacturing sector in this country, which is automobile. But nobody thinks of farming as a business. We think of it as food security. And this brings me to the third mindset, subsidy versus investment. Worldwide, agriculture is subsidized, not because farmers are poor, but because they are taking risk on behalf of the all of citizens. Who runs a business where you're dependent on a pest not hitting your crop or hailstorm not happening 10 days before you were going to harvest wheat or avian flu not hitting your crop, right? So by definition, agriculture, which touches nature, has inherent risk, very high beta, which no normal businessman would take. Our farmers take the biggest risk of all. And therefore, everybody subsidizes agriculture, even the most open market in the world, which is called EU, has one sector which is subsidized, which is agriculture. So it's not that we don't need to subsidize. It is that we also need to invest, invest in R&D, invest in capital, invest in supply chain. 
but we don't have this mindset. We make it subsidy versus investment rather than subsidy and investment. And the final thing for me is actually food versus nutrition. There's such a huge focus on food that we are creating the world's largest market for diabetes. We're creating the world's largest market for obesity, for heart, and by the way, for underweight children and for stunted children and a whole bunch of other things. I mean, I'm glad to see the year of the millet happening. But to me, these are the mindsets which drive a lot of our policy decision, much more than thinking of this as a vibrant sector run by entrepreneurs on behalf of the country, taking risks, focusing on nutrition, driving investment, and most importantly, balancing the need for profitability with the need for managing inflation for the average man. Thanks, Irina. Kavita, what do you think the government thinks of or considers when they're drafting policy and frameworks for agriculture? Let me talk about both what the government ought to be thinking about and what it is actually doing. So I believe that nutrition security has a solution in agriculture and policymakers ought to be oriented towards that. Similarly, resource regeneration on a very large scale, and we're talking about natural resources and productive resources that form the very basis of the livelihoods of crores of people in this country. And the solution really for the current degradation, depletion and degeneration actually lie in agriculture largely. So resource regeneration has to be addressed through agriculture. Climate change, both in terms of mitigation and adaptation, we really have to look at agriculture if you're a good policymaker to look at fixing it there. For livelihoods of millions of people, for food safety, we are going wrong big time in terms of the kind of food that we are eating. I'm not talking about just the nutritional composition. It's closely linked to how you are farming. But similarly, closely linked to how you are farming is the issue of whether there are toxins in your food or not, that's linked to what you do in this uh, sector. What you do with a huge burgeoning problem of public financing and how you will reorient subsidies, which will also include investments, is something that can be fixed in this sector. So all of these are issues that any policymaker ought to be thinking. But unfortunately, what we have as government policies, as state policies, are related to the fact that the government thinks about agriculture sector as one more part of the economy, almost an irrelevant part of the economy. So the government has to think about people and the planet when it thinks about agriculture. As Irina mentioned, there's a heavy consumer bias and that actually reflects a policy ignorance of not acknowledging that most of our consumers are actually producers. This dichotomy of consumers at the end of a supply chain is to this day not true in India. The hungriest and the most malnourished are partaking in the food production process. So they are not different households, they are not different people. And the fact that we are not addressing risk in agriculture, it's one of the most riskiest private enterprises out there. Nothing is in the control of farmers, not even the land that you inherit. The government ought to be looking at 
reducing risk, they are not doing it. Most importantly, they are not looking at who is the invisible amongst the producers and therein come women farmers. To this day, a lot of activities in agriculture, except for some gendered roles that have been thrust on men and not allowed to be done by women too easily, most of the work, transplanting, harvesting, weeding, sowing, all of these are done by women. But for the government, they are not visible. They're not the ones that the government keeps in mind when it creates policies. To this day, when the government creates policies, it does in a one-size-fits-all approach, and it's going completely wrong there. Just as there's diversity in the number of ways in which farming happens, is diversity in the kinds of farmers that exist out there. And women farmers, they're not one category either, but they are one of those invisible categories, and you've got to scratch the surface to understand the categories within women farmers. You're listening to On the Contrary by IDR. We'll be right back after this break. जब जैसे-जैसे ट्रेनिंग होती गई वैसे मुझे मेरे समझ में आया कि खेती ही सबसे बेस्ट है कि खेती करने में भी सबकी भलाई है जैसे कि अन्न है अन्न सुरक्षा है शाश्वत विकास है हेल्थ है तो खेती करने में ही सब मिलता है That was Archana Mani a mentor for women farmers in Marathwada, a drought-prone region in Maharashtra. While women have been cultivating land for decades, less than 2% of India's agricultural land is owned by women. They are seen as laborers and not farmers. Archana works with Swayam Shikshan Prayog, an organization that decided to change the scenario by helping women negotiate with their families for titles to land, which they used to cultivate nutritious and climate-resilient crops like millets and leafy vegetables. She also helps women set up agribusinesses, such as poultry farming and producing wormy compost. According to Archana, these women are now able to ensure food and nutrition security for their families, water security for their land, and prosperity for their communities. Learn more about Archana Mani on IDR's Ground Up, a segment that features anecdotal multimedia stories that provide an insight into how communities experience development at the grassroots. And now, back to the show. Irina, when we talk about the invisibilization of women farmers, what do you think would happen if we intentionally started recognizing the 73% of the population involved in agriculture and started thinking about them while framing policies and government schemes? So if you look at the 130 million or so estimated farms and 82% of them are less than a hectare, what's interesting to notice that there are about 30-40 million farmers who are of reasonable size where they produce for the market and the rest of them are subsistence. If you really look at a rich fruits and vegetable farmer in Punjab, he has imported labor from Bihar, or he used to have. But if you look at the average guy, his wife does the labor work, right? He might own the land. So one is you must be very clear that we are not talking of the 30, 40 million rich farmers who use a lot of labor. We are talking of a hundred million where the woman is the labor. The second thing is if you take a cut by crop, 35, 38% is livestock. Livestock in this country, 
whether it is dairy or poultry or selling of fish is completely handled by women if you look at amul and their stories their stories are built around women and one of the second order consequence for example of the cooperative movement in gujarat was as they improved the hygiene of the animal they improved the hygiene of the family and of the children and there's research which shows that because women were the one who led that whole piece of work the overall hygiene of villages which were big in the amul cooperative movement went up so in the livestock sector nothing would happen if the women were not involved even in rich households which might have 6 10 milch animals the mental ownership of the animals is always of the woman so one is keep in mind to kavita's point that we are talking of multiple segments rich and poor farmers grain and non grain livestock and on field and everywhere women are important and obviously they are most central where they are unpaid and they are most central in livestock so what would happen if women were visibilized first of all what would happen is price of food would go up because we would cost for this labor we don't cost this labor if you're a rich farmer paying for migrant labor you would have costed but just because it's the woman you don't and this is equally true in poultry it's equally true in dairy it's very true in horticulture where so much of the work is done by women so one we would cost labor but the second thing is if you costed for labor and whether the woman laborer got paid or not you would have agency much more agency with these women in the village and a woman who has agency starts building assets and starts changing the balance sheet of a family again much more for the 100 million small than for the 30 40 million rich and so some kind of wealth accumulation intergenerational will start happening kavita what do you think what would happen if our policy making changed to look at women farmers as well i want to endorse everything that uh, irina has said that there would be quite a few positive outcomes but structuring it slightly differently i could probably say that if policy making changed to acknowledge that women farmers do matter i think two broad things that will happen is certainly that the women themselves will be empowered in numerous ways whether it is related to their rights accruing to them whether it is uh, related to wage disparities or even you know investments that are not being made on them today there are studies that are showing that new age farmer producer organizations which are being created with much fanfare are actually because they are being gender blind are increasing the disparity between male and female farmers in our villages but you know you can imagine that if we had policies as though women mattered food crops polycropping and so on will come back into farming because a woman would naturally tend to make life easier for herself you know to perform roles that have been thrust on her but i think that what's called as the strategic needs of women those will also be met in terms of her decision making spaces within the household and so on and so forth so one aspect is women's empowerment per se the other aspect is that i can imagine the paradigm of farming changing significantly and that includes better pricing for food of course but it also includes a certain sort of 
nurturing of natural resources. This is what, you know, eco-feminists and others argue that women tend to have a worldview and ethos that is different from men, especially when you thrust them into a market paradigm. There's a certain perspective that they bring in there which is not similar to men. There are studies that are showing that women who farm together, and this is a study by Dr. Bina Agarwal from Kerala's Kudumbashri experience, which originated in Telangana, you know, decades ago, of group farming by women, especially using agroecological paradigms. Profitability is actually higher than family farming where a man and woman farm together. So there's empirical data that's proving that incomes are better for women. So I mean, from what both of you all have said, there seems to be so many benefits, so many upsides to just, you know, recognizing women's role in agriculture in all forms, right? And catering to those needs. But what is the likelihood that anything is going to change? What will it take to make this a reality? Irina? I don't think this is an agriculture question. I think this is a society question because I could ask you the same thing about uh, housework, whether it's in urban India or rural India. A lot of people who work in agriculture, whether it's agri-economists or scientists, they know that women work because they see. If you speak to any poultry integrator or you speak to any dairy owner, he will talk to you again and again about women. He will talk to you about how do they approach them and how in the northern part of India it's a tougher job because access to the women is more difficult and in South India it's more easy and all of that. So it's not that this is unknown amongst the practitioners. I think you're asking a bigger social question of <laughs> do, do women have rights and do they get acknowledged? And I think it goes back to the age-old thing and Kavita will perhaps have a better insight on this than I will. It goes back to who wants to give up power? Until you have money, how do you dictate power? And unfortunately or fortunately, power is never given. Power is taken, right? And I remember in one of the tribal belts in Madhya Pradesh, Pradhan had done some spectacular work with poultry women over 20, 30 years. And when we were visiting them, they were getting ready for a trip to Bhopal, where all the women every year would get into five buses, go to Bhopal, and there's one particular road on which the local legislature sit. And for two days, they would just walk up and down. And I told them why, and it used to cost them a hell of a lot, two lakhs in those days, right? And I said, why do you do this? What do you get out of it? So they say, no, but when we go and walk up and down, Bhopal knows that we have arrived. The DM knows I've arrived. And sometimes Shivraj Chahan comes out to meet us. And when we come back here, the collector and the DM knows that we went to Bhopal. Now, these were women who had decided this is our life and we are going to build a voice. I mean, this is obviously easier said than done and it had been a long time and they'd had capital. I mean, a lot of this changes when you have capital and you have capability. And this was about 10, 12 years ago. They were all women who had never studied. All their daughters were studying. Now, after 30 years of Pradhan doing spectacular work, these women had almost 100 crore turnover. In retrospect, the story is easy to tell. If you're a standalone woman or you're part of one SSG in the middle of state A or state B, it's difficult. But I think the reason it doesn't happen is because, you know, it's about power dynamics and about economics. And that will take some more time. And I think that's what we need to do. We need to take a 20, 30 year view and then just say, let's build it out. Kavita, I'm sure you want to add to this. 
Well, I get to see glimpses of great hope and there are moments of despair too. I think even in terms of policy discourse, things have changed. If you look at, you know, this great 14-volume report that was brought out on doubling farmers' incomes in India, if you would go to the agriculture extension-related volume, the kinds of things that have been said about women farmers are extremely progressive. And these are things that we would not have seen even one decade ago, two decades ago. So there are things changing both on the ground and in how some policymakers understand the criticality of women farmers. The entire shift that's happening in Andhra Pradesh through the Andhra Pradesh Community Natural Farming Program, it's happening on the strength of uh, women's collectives. And it's the women's collectives which are driving it. If you dip into experiences of Deccan Development Society or Anandi in Gujarat or the Working Group on Women's Land Ownership in Gujarat, the network organization, or Pradhan, as uh, Irina just mentioned, you can see that where women are organizing themselves to assert their identity as farmers, there are quite a few things that they are able to change. Very large collective land leasing and cultivation programs in Tamil Nadu, in Telangana, in Kerala. So there's hope. There's hope to the extent that we've got to collectively keep alive the visibility of uh, women farmers and their enormous contribution and not let the world forget it. And this will happen by the women farmers themselves finding a voice and a space to articulate it, but many others supporting this struggle. And, uh, well, there's hope. And I think we need that hope, right? But to really drive this point home for our listeners about how urgent and how important this issue is, could you paint a picture of what exactly would happen if women stopped farming in India? What would our country look like 20 years from now? Rina, if I can come to you first. <laughs> I don't think that can ever happen, realistically, because these women are mothers and homemakers as much as they are tenders of sheep and cows and buffaloes and chicken and grain. So I don't think it will happen. I don't think any woman will ever stop tending. I think the issue is not this. I think the real issue is a different one, which is farming is not exciting. The good news for us is children are getting educated. Even if only 12% go to graduation, we have at least 30% who will complete class 10, 11, 12, and maybe about 50, 60% who will complete class six, but they don't want to go back to farming. They don't want to do poultry. They don't want to do dairy. And the real issue, the real worry that I see is if you go to villages today versus villages 10 years ago, in every village you will find five, six, ten youngsters who don't fit because they can't do yesterday's job and there's no place for them in construction or there's no place for them in the small town close by. And I think what we really have to do, given the massive numbers, is we need to make farming and farming plus attractive, both for girls as well as for boys. If we did this and women played a role in making sure that farming was reframed as an attractive opportunity, not the back-breaking work, but the value addition that we don't do. 
in our agriculture, which we need to do in our agriculture, then I think the next generation of girls and boys will have a better outlook towards something that's crucial. And that's where I think celebrating women and acknowledging what they're doing in agriculture in its holistic form, the way Kavita laid it out, would be very, very powerful because then you would have a narrative and you would have a story. I cannot see a scenario where women will stop working. They're not going to do it at the expense of their families going hungry. But I do wish that the agency and the voice that they would have would help all of us reframe this sector, which is such a critical sector for the next generation. Kavita, what do you think? What would happen if women stop farming in India? Well, the activist in me says that I would actually like women to stay off work just to show the world what will happen. And you don't have to wait for 10 years, 15 years to see what will happen. I can imagine that the fact that agriculture and the overall economy itself actually runs on unpaid, unvalued, unremunerated work of women. I can imagine that it will collapse over just a few seasons and it will raise very large questions for the nation about our food sovereignty, our food security and so on. There's so many things that one can imagine as the repercussions of women staying off agriculture, skill sets, you know, valuable skill sets, knowledge, everything disappearing. In fact, if we were to call someone as our Annadatta, you know, when we visualize an Annadatta, it's really the woman, you know, who's feeding you from the kitchen as well as actually toiling off in the farm. And I can't imagine farming happening without women. And it's actually a good thought, Marinita, to put policymakers male farmers as well as women farmers and folks like all of us through some role plays and so on to visualize what would happen and then you will understand and probably really evaluate the enormity of women's contribution and take cognizance of it and start addressing the fact that we have treated them too casually for too long. What I'm taking back from our conversation today is that it is high time that we started recognizing and acknowledging women's work, especially their work in agriculture. It's also crucial for us to reorient our current agricultural policies to include women, since in addition to several other things, they also play a key role in making the sector more resilient as we deal with the climate crisis. And to get people to start paying attention to women's contribution to farming, Kavita, like you mentioned, it's important to build out this worst-case scenario, right? and paint the bleak picture so that people can understand the seriousness of the situation. But at the same time, like Irina, you said, it's also important to celebrate the work that's already happening and visibilize these countless women and their work today. Thank you, Irina. Thank you, Kavita, for this really insightful conversation today. On the Contrary by IDR is produced by Rachita Vora, Smarinita Shetty, Sneha Philip, and me, Shreya Adhikari. Additional support from Halima Ansari. Production by Made in India. If you like our show, please subscribe and leave us a review wherever you get your podcast from so more people can find out about us. You can also email us on write to us at idronline.org 
or find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter or LinkedIn. Thank you for listening and see you next week.